You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hey, San Francisco. What's good, y'all? Okay, that's not what I was supposed to do. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Alicia Garza, principal of the Black Futures Lab. I am the strategy and partnerships director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance and one of the co-creators of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, one of my absolute faves, for real, for real, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Dr. Kendi is the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center and professor of history and international relations at American University. Tonight, we are here to discuss Dr. Kendi's latest book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, wherein he exposes the multidimensional roots of racism and inequality in the United States and emphasizes the importance of playing an informed and active role in building an anti-racist society. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, well, thank you. Okay, okay, now we can do what we was going to do. <laughs> hey, San Francisco, how you doing? It's really good to see y'all. And I have been excited about this conversation for months um, for a lot of reasons. How many people here read this book? Okay. For those of you who did not raise your hands, you're in for a treat. I'm an avid reader, but I also went to years and years of school, so I learned how to like not read books. <laughs> you know, it's like you read the first sentence, the last sentence, the intro and the conclusion, and you pretty much get it. <laughs> this book I actually read cover to cover and I enjoyed every moment of it. I felt like I got read for filth and it felt so good. But also this book for me was so courageous in a time where there is so much cowardice around the elephant in the room of what keeps this country from being what it has promised that it would be, your courage to tell the truth about what it means to be on a journey of being an anti-racist in a society that does not support that um, was brilliant and heartbreaking and heartwarming and inspiring and motivating all at the same time. So I really want to thank you for this work. And I really mean it when I say you are in for a treat. So we're going to get right into it. We're going to talk about all the things. We're going to make every single person in this room uncomfortable, and it's going to be all right. Y'all going to be all right? Y'all ready to be uncomfortable? It's really for your own good. Okay. Promise. 
I wouldn't do anything to you. I wouldn't do to myself. So, um, Dr. Kendi, let's just start with the real, real. Talk to me about why you decided to write this book and why did you feel like this book was needed right now? Well, well, first of all, Alicia, thank you so much for, for, for moderating this conversation. Of course, you're one of my faves too. Oh. Uh, and thank you all for, for coming this evening. Uh, it's truly an honor for me to be here talking about this, this, this book. Um, I mean, I, I, I realized in many ways that we're living in an era where everyone imagines that they're not racist. Everyone imagines that their political opponent is the real racist. Uh, t people typically uh, respond with, no, my mama's not that way. Your mama's that way in, in, in a racial sense, right? Um, and, and so all the while, we are fundamentally debating what it means to be a racist. If, if you have two people with two different racial ideologies supporting two different types of policies, if they're both calling each other racist, then that means fundamentally they're debating what a racist is. And that's what happened this summer when, when, when the president was calling Congressman Cummings a racist and Congressman Cummings and, and the rest of us were calling the president a racist. We essentially were, were debating what a racist is. And, but it's not just those powerful people with bully pulpits. It's even individuals, individuals who, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, they want to imagine that they're not racist. And so to your question, the, the main reason why I wanted to write this book was to obliterate the term not racist from the American vocabulary. Mm. Well... <laughs> So I, I want to tell a quick story um, that your comments right now just made me think about. You know, uh, I, I'm born and raised here in the Bay Area. I'm a unicorn. Anybody else born and raised? I present. <laughs> We're the last ones left. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And ain't going nowhere. Um, born and raised here... I think if you go around the country, people would say the Bay Area is the least racist place you could find in the country. Um, people say that unless you live here and then you actually understand what's going on. Um, but the story that I want to tell is actually a deeply personal one, which is that I right now am actually in a pitched battle in my own family. Um, I come from a mixed family where I grew up with a black mother and a white father. And um, we are now in a pitched battle about what is and is not racist um, and uh, are also throwing back and forth these words, you're racist. No, you're racist. And I think um, what struck me about what you're saying is that beyond the name calling and the finger pointing, um, people and families and communities are being torn apart over this question. And so my question to you is, how do we talk about racism and anti-racism in a way that helps people understand where they fall? How do you talk about it in the book? What is a racist and what is an anti-racist? Can we just put this to bed once and for all? <laughs> sure. So we, I define, <laughs> yeah, let's put That's it to bed tonight, right now. That's what you came here for. So I define a racist um, and uh, again, I'm, I'm clear when I say racist, not necessarily racism, mm -hmm. but, but I define a racist as someone 
who is expressing a racist idea or supporting a racist policy with their action or inaction. And then I define an anti-racist as someone who is expressing an anti-racist idea or supporting an anti-racist policy with their action. So fundamentally, the opposite of racist is anti-racist. The opposite of an anti-racist idea is a racist idea. The opposite of a racist policy is, is an anti-racist policy. I define a, well, let me actually, before I do that, one of the things you'll notice from those two definitions, when I said someone who is, what that means is both terms are not fixed categories. They're not identities. They're not tattoos. It's not who a person is. It is what a person is doing in that moment. And people change. And so people, when, when we're talking about healthcare, they can speak from an anti-racist perspective. But then when we talk about criminal justice, they, they think that black people are dangerous. But then when we talk about education, they believe that inequities stem from resource inequities. They, but then when we start talking about climate change, they're like, what climate change, right? It's not affecting the global south more than the global north, right? And so ultimately, people are distinct when it comes to different issues. But then also, even on the same issues, even in the same speech, even in the same paragraph of the same speech, people can say both racist and anti-racist things. And so how do, how do we then characterize them as racist, period, that's who you are, when they have made a life of saying both racist and anti-racist things, and most people have said actually both? Or how do we tag someone as racist or anti-racist if right now they're supporting both racist and anti-racist policies? Um, and, and so for me, racist and anti-racist are descriptive terms. They describe what a person is saying or doing in the moment, knowing that people change um, and, and knowing that a person has the capacity to say, you know what, what I just said was racist. You know what? In that moment, I was being a racist. You know what? I have the capacity to be different in that very next moment and, and to recognize that was a racist idea. And I'm no longer going to say that again. And I should also add that. My definitions, and you know, we were talking about this earlier, and, and you're going to sort of see this as a pattern. We oftentimes define the terms racist and even anti-racist from a perpetrator and intent perspective. In other words, a person who is racist, that's in their bones, that's in their heart, that's, who, that's what they intend. So I intended to denigrate black people. And, and so because we know that person is intending to denigrate black people, they are a racist. But the person who just did not know that that idea that they just described offended someone, we would say, or people commonly say, oh, well, they're not racist. What, what that means is we're, we're, we're fundamentally focused on intent as opposed to outcome. Or if we say this particular person, because they identify as a radical, because they identify as a progressive, because they identify as a liberal, because they're a Democrat, because they're a Latinx person or black person or they uh, are a northerner, they can't be racist, <laughs> right? So that's, again, perpetrator-centered uh, as opposed to what they are saying and, and what they're doing. Mm. 
So everybody's racist (laughs) and anti-racist. And it's a question of choice. Yeah, it is. Consciousness and courage. Yes. Y'all hear that? Yeah. Okay. So, but there is a thing that happens. And, you know, I was talking to you and um, really feeling compassionate for you on this book tour because I know you've been everywhere and I know you've heard everything. And every audience is different, but I will tell you, as somebody who has been all over the country, there are archetypes of questions that you get. And one of those questions is always starts with, I'm not racist, but... (laughs) Right? Or, um, uh, I know somebody who... Right? You can count, like, the person of color that you know on one hand, and you want to talk about how they're not like everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's a racist idea, by the way. Okay. Just checking. (laughs) Um, But I bring that up because one of the things that I think is a gift to us from this book um, is that you tackle shame face forward and head on. Mm -hmm. There is a thing that happens around grappling with these questions of what is racist, what is anti-racist, who is being racist and who is being anti-racist that gets shrouded in shame. If I have uh, walked up to a black person in a store and I thought they worked there and I was told forcefully, I don't work here, um, I now feel a deep level of shame and I am going to close this up and I'm not going to have this conversation anymore because I've made a mistake. Anybody ever made a mistake like that before? Just raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how did you get through? You talk about a very personal journey in your book where you faced head on the times in your life when you saw and realized I have racist ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what was your journey to overcoming the shame that comes from holding and practicing racism? Yeah. So the book was very, very difficult to write. Uh, obviously I'm very, very personal in general and private. And, and then when you, when I had this, so when we had this idea of essentially writing a book that's anchored by some of the most shameful moments of my life. And, and the reason why they're shameful is because of how much I love black people. And I had to share the moments in which I fundamentally demonstrated either my hate of black people um, or my denigration of black people um, at times in which I imagined that I was serving black people. And and to make matters worse, and I think I lead off the book with, with the story, and, and I'm not going to give it completely away, but essentially... For the better part of my high school life, I was a fledgling student. And it wasn't until I gave this speech as a senior in high school for this MLK oratorical contest. And in this speech, it was essentially a series of of anti-black ideas, specifically about black youth. I said that black youth continue to climb the high tree of pregnancy. Black youth are the most feared in society as if it was their fault. They were so feared. Black youth don't value education. And what was ironic about that moment 
is reflecting on that time I ended up winning this competition. And as a result of winning this competition, based on this anti-black racist speech, I gained academic confidence. So in other words, I stepped on black heads and thought better about myself, which then propelled me into college. And, and so I didn't realize just how deeply racist the speech was until I really started looking back on my own sort of personal history for this book. But I had always remembered that that speech and that experience sort of turned me around academically. And so to think of that contradiction, I mean, that was just one of the more shameful sort of moments in my life. But at the same time, I recognized that in order for us to be anti-racist, we have to be willing to look in the mirror, in the mirror of ourselves, in the mirror of our past. We have to be willing to excavate um, and to take up and, and to, to hang on hangers, those most shameful moments of our lives. Because the opposite of that is continuing to deny it. And, and the heartbeat of racism itself is denial. And what a racist does is no matter what, they just deny that that's racist or that they were racist. While an anti-racist says, you know what, I was being racist and I'm going to change. And I wanted to sort of model that in a way in this text. Mm. Y'all see why I love him so much? So you wrote another book that I'm obsessed with. And the book is called... Uh, stamped from the beginning, a definitive history of racist ideas. It's excellently written. You're an excellent writer. And um, it's long. <laughs> that thing is real serious. But it's good. It's really good. Okay, here's what I love about it, though. Um, you really unmask the relationship between ideas and policy. And, you know, the way that I was taught to think about racism and race in this country is that um, it's not what you think, it's what you do, which is why we can have this conversation about um, aberrations, right? So usually when we talk about racism and how it presents itself in systems, uh, policing, for example, we say, Oh no, no, no. It's just, it's not the system itself. It's just a couple of bad people. And if we can get rid of those bad people, mm -hmm. then the system is fine. Um, your book stamped from the beginning says, well, okay. So first of all, systems are entrenched in racism. Um, but then this book actually offers us a path forward and offers us a way to think about how change happens. And you challenge common notions of how change happens. So often people think, um, that it's culture that creates policy that then creates outcomes. Mm -hmm. And you say, no, it's policy <laughs> that creates culture that creates outcomes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know it's like big concepts, right? I mean, all that stuff. But how does that play out in the real real? Sure. So I think that 
when I was writing Stamp from the Beginning and, and certainly this, this book, one of the, my primary objectives was to figure out a way to clarify all of these complexities of racism because this is something that everyday people deal with. Everyday people need to be a part of the struggle against it. And so in order for them to be a part of that struggle, they have to understand what the problem is, right? They have to understand a path towards a solution. Mm-hmm. I say all that to say, because I say all that to say, that's why specifically with Stamp from the beginning and certainly with this book, I decided to use the terms very deliberately, racist policies and racist ideas. And, and the reason being is because you know, as I talk about in the book, I think commonly those of us who study racism and or, or activists against racism, you know, we understand things like structural sort of racism or systemic racism. We understand notions like sort of prejudice and, and bias and all these types of things. But everyday people are like, okay, so break that down, make that plain. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What does it, what does structural racism fundamentally mean? How can I truly see that? Um, or not see that in my everyday life. And I, I thought the way to break it down was to talk about policies and ideas and to talk about their relationship. Because really the relationship between power, policies, ideas, and inequities is essentially racism. And so that's how you sort of understand what's happening with racism. So when I say power, I'm fundamentally talking about policy makers. People who have the power to make and shape and break and eliminate policies. And that's not just Congress women and men. That's even people in this institution. That's any institution. That's any neighborhood. That's a home has policies, right? And then you have the actual policies themselves, which people imagine that like the policies live. In other words, like, the policies are like this machine that is like has AI. <laughs> no, no. They're policy makers who instituted those policies out of self-interest. In other words, I'm enslaving black people to make money. I'm pushing voter ID laws to get elected. I am mass deporting people because I recognize that that's who my base thinks is taking away their jobs, even though I know I'm taking away their jobs. <laughs> and, and so you have this relationship in which policymakers or in, racist policymakers are instituting racist policies out of self-interest. And then those racist policies obviously create racial inequities. And but then those policymakers are not like, hey, that's our fault. Those, ra- those racial inequities are our fault. No, they say the cause of those inequities are inferior peoples and thereby comes the racist ideas. In other words, the reason why black people are enslaved is because they're the cursed descendants of Ham and they're supposed to be enslaved. The, 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 the reason why black people continue to get killed by the police is because they're so reckless with the police. There's something wrong with the people. And so they create these ideas and mass circulate them. And then people mass consume them. 
And then the people consume them and then they look out at those disparities and see normality. This nation of inequities, it's post-racial. This world of inequities, it's great. We're in a modern era. Humanity has never been better, even though racial inequity has never been worse. And, and so ideas cause people to shape their reality, right? And, and so I wanted to sort of break it down at the barest of levels. And, and it's not the case that, that ignorant and hateful people are producing these racist ideas and, 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 and people who have these racist ideas are instituting these racist policies. No, that's what we've been taught because we, they don't want us to see the self-interest and the gains from those policies that they're instituting and the way in which they're essentially creating racist ideas that sometimes they don't even believe. And then their supporters believe them and they're laughing at their supporters from believing them. And then their supporters are becoming ignorant and hateful. Mm. Well... All right, all right, all right. So let me get this correct. Mm -hmm. So if that's true, then what I hear you saying is that, one, we're not in a post-racial society. (laughs) (laughs) And two, um, even the most well-intentioned people can be perpetuating racist ideas and racist policy. Yes. And let me give an example. Um, In 1831, a Boston uh, editor who had just started a newspaper called The Liberator declared immediate emancipation. He, he, He stated, you know what? We should have immediate emancipation of all black people who are enslaved in the South right now. It was one of the most radical ideas in American history. And, and clearly, he was extremely well-meaning. He became the principal white male abolitionist. I'm talking about William Lloyd Garrison. And he spent the next three decades calling consistently for immediate emancipation. And again, I, I'm, I'm saying immediate emancipation because you had other moderates, for the lack of a better term, calling for gradual emancipation. Right? We just can't free all those people. Like, are you crazy? <laughs> That's like freeing all that. The way people understood it then is the way Americans understand it today. If we were to let all prisoners free mm. that oh, it would just be mayhem. Right. Right. And, and so they were like, we need a gradual process. Right. And, and William Lloyd Garrison was like, no, immediate. Now, this is immoral. This is evil. This is devilish. Slave owners are devilish. And black people loved him because he was calling for immediate emancipation. But what he was also saying was that slavery was so dehumanizing that it literally was making black people into brutes. That black people who were enslaved, that this system was so horrible and immoral that these people have lost all connection to humanity. And I'm quoting him very directly here because he basically said that when he wrote the introduction to Frederick Douglass's autobiography or narrative in 1845. So what happened is when the Civil War came and the North won, what he stated 
is that these people cannot receive their civil and voting rights. We have to civilize them first. Remember, slavery made them into brutes. So we have to civilize them before they get their political rights because they'll just waste them away. And obviously, he's one of the most important, critical characters in American history in terms of a good person. But he simultaneously had racist ideas and opposed Reconstruction, opposed these civil and voting rights acts initially. Now, eventually, he, he changed, right? But that's an example of somebody who is of goodwill, who is doing good work, who still can't see that the only thing wrong in our nation, the only racial wrong is racist policy and power. Mm. Well, <clears throat> well, I'm, you all ready to get real? Really? Yeah. All right. Stretch. Take a deep breath. Center yourselves. Um. Oh, okay. I was challenged by this book. I told you that, right? I felt like I was getting read for filth in a good way. It felt so good. But here's what I was challenged by. So I, too, am a scholar. I study history. I teach ethnic studies. And I have read and been taught that um, racism goes one way and one way only. It goes from white people to people who are not white. And you are like, "Mm, no, sorry, doesn't work that way. And I was like, excuse me? (laughs) What do you mean? So I I, want to get all into that. But then also, um, I was challenged by this. I, in, in relationship to this conversation about who can and who can't be racist, um, I was challenged by this notion that power is just people. So the way that I learned about racism, I told you one way, white people to people who are not white. And then basically when you say, well, what about black people? Or what about people of color who are being mean to white people? I was like, no, that's just being mean. That's not being racist. <laughs> right? And furthermore... I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. But um, if that happens, that's just prejudice. But that it doesn't have power. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, it doesn't have the same effect. And I'm still struggling with this. So I want I want to like I want us to rap about this. Y'all were like, yeah, I want to hear about that, too. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Scholars in the room was good. Um, White folks, we come into you, too. Don't you worry. (laughs) Um but here's the other thing, because I, I, ha- I have a thing. I have a thing. You know, we all have pet peeves. Y'all have pet peeves? Yeah. I'm going to ask you about your pet peeves in a minute. Want to know my pet peeve? Anytime anybody talks about black on black anything, I'm like, I'm done. We're not having this conversation anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Now, y'all know, some of you in this room, let's be honest now. <clears throat> some of y'all in this room have said, well, yeah, I mean, racism is a problem. But. What's really a problem is how y'all do each other. That's really the issue. Y'all take each other out. And then we say it to each other. Okay, I've heard that many times in my family. Yeah, yeah, I mean, white folks go and do what white folks do. But the real issue is what black folks do to black folks. Mm-hmm. And you know what's deep? Every ethnic group says that about each other. Every single one. 
every single one. Every single one says that the other group is more organized, has more solidarity, gets along better, loves on each other better. (laughs) Just to tell you, everybody says that. It ain't true. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. So you in your book, I'm getting to the question. I'm getting there. In your book, you break down hella different types of racism. There's hell racism. There's color racism. There's class racism. There's queer racism. There's hell racism. All kind of racism. So <laughs> I want to get into those. I felt like it was really good. I want to get into it, though. Why did you feel like you needed to distinguish between different types of racism? And then also... Talk to me about this power aspect Mm -hmm. and who can and can't be racist. Because again, um, I was like, I don't think black people can be racist with other black people or against anybody else, quite frankly. I actually thought that. Look at me exposing myself to you. (laughs) So can you break it down? Talk about why you read The People for Filth. Go ahead. (laughs) Well, I think... First, I think it's critical for us, for me to share how I understand power, mm-hmm. because I, I think I, I understand it differently than many people. Mm-hmm. And as I broke down in the book, um, sort of, I understand three levels of power. The highest level, for the ba- lack of a better term, as I mentioned earlier, is the policymaker. Mm-hmm. So they literally are the ones who have the ability to shape policy, and I define policy as measures that have the ability to govern people, groups of people. But then you also have policy managers. And so these are not people who make policy, but they're the people who execute policy. So to give an example, you know, a president or a board of trustees of a college may determine admissions policy, but then you have an admissions officer who sort of carries out that policy. Uh-huh. And then... The other level is the power to resist. And whenever someone says black people don't have power, they're also saying black people do not have power to resist. Mm. And whenever they're saying that black people do not have power to resist, they're saying that black people are slaves. Mm. And I'm not saying enslaved, because when we think of enslaved people, we're thinking about people who were enslaved who were what? resisting mm. i'm talking about when you ever you say a people have no power mm. you're saying they don't have the power to resist and when you're saying that white people are all powerful have all the power you're classifying them as gods mm-hmm. and so fundamentally i don't conceive of white people as gods mm-hmm. and i don't conceive of black people as slaves well fancy that <laughs> and And so going back to those three levels, right, policy is shaped by individuals collectively or individual and resisted by individuals collectively or as individuals. Let me say that as a collective, black people are not in a position of power in this country. So white people predominate in this country, in terms of power. Who has the power, generally speaking, in this country as a collective? 
as a collective force, white people. But then when we talk individually, it's a completely different story. Every single individual black person, like every single Latinx, like every single Asian and native and white person has the power to resist. And one of the things I found in researching the history of anti-black racist ideas is those black people who believe those anti-black racist ideas, who consumed them, who internalized them, did not resist <laughs> because they thought the problem was black people. And the purpose, again, of racist ideas historically has been to get people to resist, to get people to internalize them and say the problem is these people, not these policies. But other black people have rejected those anti-black racist ideas, have said, no, the problem is not black people. No, the problem is racist power and policy. And I'm going to be a part of this struggle fighting slavery, fighting segregation, fighting Jim Crow, fighting police brutality. There's a clear distinction there. And some of those people who are fighting police brutality have tried to organize those black people who are like, the police are not the problem. I should say violent racist police are not the problem. Black people are the problem. So they had internalized racist ideas and therefore it made them unable to resist what was actually ensnaring them. They had the power and refused to use it because of their racist ideas. Then you have black people, excuse me. That's okay. You have Latinx people, you have Asian people, and you have native people who are policy managers. And you have some of those people use their power to essentially not execute policies that they know are racist. And then you have other people who are going to execute those policies better than white people because they're trying to rise up the ladder. In other words, they're Mm. pushing these policies out of what? Self-interest. And then you have policy makers Mm. who are people of color. And some of those policy makers use their power to make policies that lead to inequity. And then you have others who use their power as policymakers to make and break policies, or should say make policies that lead to equity. There's a clear distinction there, right? Clarence Thomas, and I'll go to my deathbed saying this, Uh is a racist. He's used his power. There's a 5-4 split on the Supreme Court, right? We would not have George W. Bush if not for Clarence Thomas. And I was in Tallahassee as a freshman in Florida. I knew and saw first and second hand all of these black folk whose votes were spoiled, whose votes were thrown out, who was not allowed to vote. And we had a black guy on the Supreme Court who decided to not side with the people who said that that was racist and wrong. Mm. And and he didn't have any power Mm. in 2004. How did how did how did George W. Bush win? Because he won Ohio. Who was the secretary of state in Ohio? Ken Blackwell, who is black, who decided to use his power as secretary of state to ensure that George W. Bush won won the reelection. How? By suppressing black voters. Mm. And then he used that. Mm. He used that success to run for governor, didn't win. He used that success to run for the National Republican Committee, didn't win. So then when Trump got elected, Mm. he named him to his so-called voter electoral commission Mm. because of his record in suppressing black votes. Mm. How did he not have power? 
We should all know from Stacey Abrams' campaign how much power a Secretary of State has. Well. Okay, I'm going to take a quick point of personal privilege. Malachi, babe, you got a seat right here. It's calling your name. Sorry, my boo came, and they're a little bit late, but they came. (laughs) And, you know... Yeah, anyways. Um, everybody say, hey, Malachi. Hey, Malachi. Okay. Cute. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm going down for this later. Uh, so <laughs> you took us to church, and I was really feeling you because of a whole bunch of reasons, but also 10 years of organizing here in San Francisco. And I have so many stories to tell. But folks, here's what you should take from that anecdote. Um, just because a black person is pushing it doesn't mean it's not racist. Mm-hmm. And we don't all know each other. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of us do. Okay. Uh, because there's not that many of us here. Uh, all right. So, I, 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 I I told, okay, white folks, we, y'all with me? We gonna get into it? Okay, I know you're here because you want to get into these conversations, so let's just go in. Um, what is going on? <laughs> I mean, never in my lifetime did I think that we would have a person in this Oval Office um, who is quite like this person. And make no mistake, I don't want to do the thing where I'm like laughing at him because it's not a laughing matter. Um, it's certainly weird. It's definitely out there. And thing, being from San Francisco, if I say something is weird, it's really, <laughs> it's really out there. Uh, my crystals did not predict this. <laughs> and, uh, but you know what? It's a, um, it's a statement. The person who is occupying the Oval Office is a statement of values. Uh, We just had an election in North Carolina. Moderate Democrat. um, President-aligned Republican. President-aligned Republican won. Um, For anybody who thinks that this conversation is, like, nice to have but not important... Um, I want to disavow you of that notion right now. Because from where I sit in this moment, um, I think that we are going to have another four years of this president. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think that is because too many of us are looking at him and being like, he's just bizarre, but he'll be gone. He just has another year and we'll go back to normal. But then it begs the question, well, what is normal? And I don't want to go back to where we are right now. I'd like to leave this forever. But I actually don't want to go back to where we were either. Mm -hmm. And so the thing I'm struggling with here is, um, y'all know um, black people did not vote for Donald Trump. No, literally. There was a poll that came out. CNN just did a poll. They said um, the president has support from 3% of black women. And I feel like that was too high. 
uh, and it was, you know, under 10% for black people. We didn't elect this president. Um, now some of y'all going to say, yeah, but y'all didn't vote. And I'm coming back to you to have a conversation because <laughs> we voted. Anyways, here's my point. Uh, Donald Trump got elected by white voters in this country. That's not disputable. White voters vote more consistently. Um, older white voters vote more conservatively. And uh, this president was elected by 53% of white women who voted in 2016 and an even higher number of white men who voted. Okay. Of course, he got some black votes, some Latinx votes, some Asian Pacific Islander votes. But by and large, the majority of white folks who voted voted for this president. So I just want us to sit with that for a minute. And, um, you know, we might say to ourselves, well, why didn't we have President Clinton? Hillary Clinton. And um, the answer is because we thought that um, white women were going to vote for a white woman, and they did not. Um, white women voted for a man, a white man, who um, is unabashedly racist. But he says all the time that he's not racist. He says, I'm the least racist person. Anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the United States or in the universe, yeah. basically. So here's my point. I want us to have a real conversation about why that happened. Because it's not that all white people are bad. It's not that all white people are mean people. It's not necessarily that all white people are racist. Um, but the racism was appealing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, talk to me about this, Dr. Kendi, because... I'm gearing up for 2020. I'm doing push-ups. I'm meditating. I'm, I, I'm doing all the things, and I think we're going to lose. However, give me some hope. First of all, why do white people vote for racist presidents who are white? Number two, um, why does this hurt white people? Because I feel like when we talk about racism, it's like almost like a charity thing. Like white people, you should be nicer to people who are not white. Mm -hmm. And the way to be nice to people who are not white is to not be racist. But that is not actually the equation. So can you work with me here? Sure. What, why, why does this happen? And why are white people who are voting for racist presidents working against their own self-interest? <laughs> so, I mean, I'll, I'll say first that I, I agree with you. I think that the um, the Trumpster, um, y'all like that, or or they the they orange call him, menace, yeah, the orange man. Um, I, I think Toupe that fiasco. he's actually the favorite um, to win in twenty twenty. So, what he's they're essentially going to have raised over a billion dollars, and I suspect nine hundred. And nine, 950 million of that 1 billion will go to the mass circulation of racist ideas, yep. um, specifically targeting um, uh, white people. And, and but I think there's going to also be a circulation of, of, of ideas trying to sort of shave off uh, black voters in key swing states, um, particularly if it's the Joe Biden is the candidate. 
um, because his record allows such for a, a, t- a tremendous amount of material. If you thought it was bad with Hillary, um, the amount of material that they're going to use, um, particularly on Facebook and other mediums, to shave off a few points. Um, and I should, when I say they, I'm talking about the Trump campaign and the Russians. Um, right. I don't know what's the difference, but, um, you know, it's going to be massive um, and it's going to be tailored um, and it's going to be persuasive. And that combined with the systemic and very keen ways of suppressing votes. So whether that's they're continuing to purge voters in key swing states, whether that's figuring out ways, okay, you know what, I'm going to make it such that this black voter is not excited about this candidate, and then I'm going to create conditions in which they have to wait five hours in a line in order to vote. And I suspect that's going to be able to shave off enough of those voters. Um, to give an example, in uh, so so oh, I was going to go in another place. Let me let me stay on topic. Go so where you want, Dr. Kendi? So in terms of why uh, white people voted for Trump, I mean the data is pretty indisputable. That what distinguished the Trump voter was their racist ideas, and people thought. Right. That Trump was just this raging idiot. Like, why is he talking about Latinx immigrants in that in that way? Why is he saying black people live in hell? Why is he disparaging Muslim people like that? Because he saw the racist ideas of people coming out of the Obama era and he tapped into that well and he organized and mobilized that well Um, and he rode that wave into the presidency. Um, and, and I think that it's absolutely critical for us to, for instance, recognize why he continues to describe Bahamas, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Nigeria, Haiti, all these countries where people have come from as dangerous. Because the most dangerous and widespread, I would argue, Racist idea is the idea of the dangerous black or Latinx or, or, or native neighborhood. That is widespread. Even among people, you know, on the far left, they still believe that black neighborhoods are more dangerous. And he knows that, which is why he continues to essentially use specifically that racist idea, yep. whether it's about, it's about Baltimore or, or Nassau, Bahamas. And, and so people imagine that he's stupid and ignorant when for me, he knows precisely what he's doing, and it's been effective. Yep. And, but at the same time, the irony is that his policies have actually hurt his base. And the irony is as his base struggles more, he has taught them who to blame. And that's why it's so self-destructive, because they will struggle more, particularly in middle and rural America. And then they're going to even more so believe that the problem is people of color so much so that they're going to start arming themselves. And one day they're going to grab their AK and go and shoot dozens of people like that's the America that we're living in. Right. And what's ironic is that racism historically, anti-black racism, which I'm mostly a student of, has historically harmed the majority of white people. 
without those majority of white people knowing it. And what I mean by that is white people have benefited more from anti-black racist policies than black people, but they have been benefited more from those policies than the alternative. To give an example, you have Americans, you have white Americans currently who are opposing Obamacare expansions in their states because they don't want those black and Latinx people to get it. And so then now they're one major, one major illness away from bankruptcy or even death. But all they can think of is what somebody else is going to get. Right. And, and so as a result, in these states that don't have the Obamacare extension, don't have uh, Medicaid, don't have Medicare, white people are dying. In states where you have white men who are shouting to the rafters, I need my guns to protect my family against Muslim terrorists, against black criminals, against Latinx immigrant invaders. And so therefore, I want to have the act, the ability to sort of, I don't want any gun control laws. In those states with virtually no gun control laws, those very white men are not using those guns to defend against Muslim terrorists and and black criminals and Latinx immigrants. They're turning the guns on themselves. And there's an epidemic of white male suicide right now, quietly, that is going on right now. That's right. Right. And then... You have in states like Kansas, where state governments are like, let's 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 slash money for schools. And the white people were like, yeah, let's slash money for those minority schools. Right. And then what happened? Schools money for their schools was slashed. Right. Just like white people in the 80s and 90s was like, yeah, this mass incarceration and building all these prisons. That's great. Let's warehouse as many of those black people as possible. But then they had to raid university and, and educational funds in order to pay for that, which then led to a skyrocketing cost of higher education for white people based on their desires to incarcerate people because they had smoked marijuana. And so now they have to spend three and four times more money on sending their kid to a UC school because they wanted all those kids who were smoking marijuana to be in prison. Mm. I mean, this is the world that we're living in. Mm. Okay, I have been selfish. There's questions. I'm going to ask them, but not all of them, so that you too can get your questions answered. I got all mine answered, and I appreciate you. Um, This one from Carla, I already answered that. Um, Thank you for asking it. It was excellent. Uh, It was the question just for your uh, uh, perusal. It was the question about the definition of racism going against the orthodoxy of how we talk about racism. You're welcome. Uh, This one's timely. Given that today is the anniversary of the September 11th attacks, how would you say that racism has played a role in U.S. foreign policy over the past few decades? And how does this tie into your arguments around racist domestic policy? Whose question is this? You don't want to own it? That's okay. (laughs) Okay, okay. All right. Thank you for it. Well, I think that obviously racist ideas and and policies have long been at the heart Mm -hmm. 
of, of American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at when American foreign policy really sort of emerged in the 19th century, it essentially was a, a foreign policy to take over all of Latin America. Mm-hmm. And essentially allow for Latin American resources and I'm sorry, national and human to be used by what were fast becoming what we now call multinational sort of corporations. And of course, those corporations simultaneously or should I say the U.S. or those corporations simultaneously said to Europe, don't do anything in Latin America. You can continue to colonize uh, Africa and Asia, but Latin America is ours, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, obviously, as a result of the de- decolonization movement, um, you had all of these new and free sort of Asian and, 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 and Latin American and African sort of states emerging mm-hmm. um, in, in the 1930s and 40s and, and, and certainly 50s and, and 60s. And the role that the U.S. played... Uh, like other European states who were not happy about these new decolonized nations was to ensure that the new leaders of these nations would essentially uh, pro- continue to provide access to their markets and resources. And when leaders like Patrice Lumumba hey. and Kwame Nkrumah hey. and, and Jomo Kenyatta and others were like, you know what, U.S., y'all control y'all resources, you do what's best for your people. We want to control our resources and do what's best for our people. They were like, no, we're going to engage in coup d'etat as they did in Ghana. We're going to assassinate you as they did with Patrice Lumumba. Mm-hmm. And, and so by, ni- by the end of the 1960s, the U.S. combined with other forces in, in Europe had essentially destabilized either through death, through coup d'etat, or through what they called aid, you better come on. Basically, <laughs> uh, you know, self-governing political and economic units in Africa, as well as uh, other parts of the world. And so now we're living in a moment of what people call neo-colonization, in which, no, the U.S. or Europe doesn't control these nations politically, but they basically control them economically, mm-hmm. which, as we know here, whoever controls the economy, right, basically controls the politics, mm-hmm. right? And so then they use aid and military force to ensure U.S. access to markets and resources. Mm-hmm. And that's how you can have a country like the Congo, which is the richest country in the world below ground and one of the poorest above grounds. And the reason why it's one of the richest in the world below ground is because in the Congo, there's this mineral, and I'm forgetting its name, but 75% of the world's deposits are in the Congo. And this mineral is utilized in order to make cell phones and computers. So everybody's cell phones and computers, right, needs this mineral. And 75% of the world's deposits are in one country. But it's still one of the poorest countries in the world. And, of course, now it's not just the U.S. and Europe. You also have China, which, of course, is, is, is colonizing and decolonizing these nations through, quote, aid and, quote, investment, as it's called. And, and, and so, you know, the U.S. has long used its military in the form of what Naomi Klein would call disaster capitalism. There's a problem. Let me swoop in. With my military, quote, solve the so-called humanitarian crisis, in in many cases it was, but I'm not just going to leave and allow you to then govern yourself. No. 
No, I want access now. Mm. Well, is it possible to be an anti-racist while working in historically and currently racist institutions? So I think it's hard, obviously, to to be an anti-racist working in in those types of institutions. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you can be a person who is part of the force within that institution who is challenging its longstanding racist policies, who when people express racist ideas to justify the inequities in that institutions, you're not saying you're not you're the one who is challenging those ideas. And and I, I don't want us to imagine and I try to emphasize this in the book that these institutions, this nation, that racism is finite. It is permanent. No, those policymakers have to continuously ensure the reproduction of racial inequity in each generation. It's not something that is just normal. It's not just going to happen. Policies make it happen and powerful people behind those policies. And so what that means is we can change those policies and clearly we can drive those people from power. And then we can create a completely different type of society with different type of institutions. If we call it the same name, great. If we use another name, that's great too, because ultimately what makes an institution Mm -hmm. fundamentally are its policies. Mm. Ooh, I have two more questions and one of them is my own. There seems to be a reluctance in the media to the, using the word racist. Why? Is it because of a reluctance to confront? How is this good for American discourse? And then save time for my last question. <laughs> I think one of the greatest tragedies in, American, in, in America's discourse is the struggle that journalists have to use a word that's in the dictionary. Okay. <laughs> um, wow. And, and so to me, that's what journalists do. They, they take the dictionary... They use the dictionary to explain what they see, right? And so if they see someone who's saying that uh, no one want to want to live in that black city, no human being, that's a racist idea. And that person is being racist, right? If, if, if they see someone who's who's saying that there's nothing wrong with Baltimore, there's nothing wrong with the people there, and there's everything wrong with the policies that these people are facing, that's an anti-racist, right? That's what a journalist should do. And any journalist does not have the courage mm. to use the dictionary. Come on. Does not have the courage to call a racist a racist is to me equivalent to a journalist who doesn't have the courage to say it's hot when there's a heat wave. Like this is what it's that simple, right? But for whatever reason, you have journalists who imagine that calling someone a racist is a political act. Like it's a word. It has a meaning. Mm -hmm. There's, you can literally call someone a a racist and be objective. If you're committed to that fallacy of objectivity, you can do that. Mm. And it just, I mean, it really, obviously, it bothers me when people don't want to use words that are in the dictionary. Mm. Well, that was a read. (laughs) Um, Okay. Uh, Somebody in this room wants to start an anti-racism reading group. In their hometown of Santa Rosa, Rosa, um, is One World doing any reading guides or gathering names of interested people? Is that happening? 
I'm not sure. We'll come back we to you. We'll get back to you. Okay. That wasn't my question. Uh, there's the inform last question, but I'm not ready for that one yet. Um, this one is really about those of us who have a consciousness around racism, see ourselves as anti-racist, practice anti-racism as much as we possibly can. Um, what are we doing wrong? Cause like racism is traumatic. It's traumatic for, um, the perpetrator and it's traumatic for the survivor. And, um, for some of us who are surviving racism every day, the best that we can, um, we just mad, we mad and we just want you to feel the pain that we feel. What's wrong with that? Is that getting rid of racism? So you mind if I read something? Could you? <laughs> so, so I think that one of the more difficult parts of the book is when I, uh, I talked about, and we didn't talk about this today, but I talked about how and why black people can be racist towards white people. Mm-hmm. And, and this to me very speaks to like, if you as a black person mm-hmm. are constantly subjected to racist abuse from white people, it's hard to not <laughs> hate those people who are doing that to you. And then to generalize, um, and so I write in the, in this chapter called white ordinary white racist function as soldiers of racist power dealing each day with these ground troops shelling out racist abuse. It is hard for people of color not to hate ordinary white people. Anti-white racist ideas are usually a reflexive reaction to white racism Anti-white racism is indeed the hate that hate produced, attractive to the victims of white racism. And yet, racist power thrives on anti-white racist ideas. More hatred only makes their power greater. When black people recoil from white racism and concentrate their hatred on everyday white people, as I did freshman year in college, they are not fighting racist power or racist policymakers. In in losing focus on racist power, they fail to challenge anti-black racist policies, which means those policies are more likely to flourish. Going after white people instead of racist power prolongs the policies harming black life. In the end, Anti-white racist ideas and taking some or all of the focus off racist power becomes anti-black. In the end, hating white people becomes hating black people. Mm. Okay. (laughs) We have so much more to talk And you remember what I said after that? Yes, I do. Come on, bring it. And I write, in the end, and this is for white people, in the end, hating black people becomes hating white people. And I explain why. (laughs) Get the book, y'all. Okay, we're not done. We still have a 60-second idea for making the world a better place. Your 60-second idea? Sure. So... (laughs) 
No, I'm like, you wrote two books about how to make the world better, but give me everything in 60 seconds. So I think first, if we as a nation, particularly legally and commonly in a popular sense, defined when we saw racial inequity, we saw racist policy, period. Mm. And that we as a nation would thereby seek to fundamentally eliminate (laughs) those policies. That we would not determine a policy as racist based on its intent, based on whether the person knew that it would lead to those inequities. All we cared about was the outcome. And if a policy was racist, if a policy led to racial inequity, we would classify it as racist and thereby unconstitutional. In other words, racist policies, in the way I define it, would become unconstitutional in every neighborhood, in every institution, and public officials. It would be unconstitutional for them to express a racist idea. I love that. I love that. Um, my 60 second idea to make the world a better place, more naps. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Kendi, for joining us here tonight at Inforum Commonwealth Club. Please join him in the book, in the lounge for a book signing of how to be an anti-racist. I'm Alicia Garza. Have a wonderful anti-racist night. Thank you.